when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Oh, hello. You found Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gather around the table. This week, we've got Gita Jackson. Hello, I'm Gita. And our producer, Ricardo Contreras. Hey, how's it going? Well, that's an, that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it fucking is, isn't it? How, it really how is. is it going? Ask, like, Not how things are going great. Right now. <laughs> Not good. I would say things have been better. We are living in the cool zone of history. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, the cool zone of history. Have you heard that we read that one viral tweet, Rob? Uh, uh, no, is it a Chapo thing? No, it's not a Chapo thing. It's an act. It's, I was not gonna, I was not going to say actual leftist, but it's a leftist <laughs> thing that does not involve Chapo at all. Okay. Um, uh, they wrote something like, when unemployment reaches above 30% and there's widespread distrust of the governmental bodies in this country, America will enter what historians call the cool zone. And, you know, the euphemism of the cool zone, I think, is something that everyone understands innately what the cool zone is when it's explained to you that way. But grappling with the fact that we're living in the cool zone has been really interesting for me personally. Yeah. Though I guess right away, like... Is this one of the things that I'm struggling with is, is this different, right? Like, is this materially different despite the fact that we have massive economic trauma via COVID-19? This also feels very much of a piece with uh, Ferguson protests Mm -hmm. in uh, 2014. Uh, It feels very much of a piece with a lot of various other uh, protests we've seen in relation to uh, killings of black people by police or by white vigilantes, uh, basically. And so I think this is one of the things that makes it tough to parse this is like, is this different because historical context now is so much uh, more loaded? It's so different than it's been in the past? Or is this more of this recurring trauma that uh, we all live through again and again because nothing ever changes well i actually talked about this with my dad um so people who are not aware of what's happening right now which i assume that some people are coming back from a break of not being on the internet for a weekend so if this is your first introduction for this current situation i'm sorry uh but for months since january protesters in minnesota have been trying to get the an officer that murdered a man named george floyd in cold blood to be charged with first degree murder And over the weekend, protests in Minnesota and then eventually in many, many different dozens of states in America and also internationally uh, in solidarity with Minnesota, um, 
is cropped up and they became you know, violent very quickly. A lot of my friends in New York went to the actions in Brooklyn and all of them said the same thing, that it was peaceful until the cops started instigating shit. Um, and we've seen it consistently across the states and it does not seem like these protests are slowing down at all. Uh, and while people are splitting hairs or wringing their hands over smashed window f- storefronts or storefronts of windows, there's something different. I don't know. I talking to my dad, who um, grew up in Selma, Alabama, under Jim Crow, and was 16 when the civil rights movement was happening there, and was a participant. He actually he uh, he marched on Birmingham as a teen, and he told me when they got to the end of the bridge, uh, he said he had to choose between. Uh, <laughs> getting beat up by the cops and their dogs or just jumping off the bridge. And he was like, I don't know which one is a better choice. Uh, he got arrested there. Yeah, he got arrested a lot as a teenager. Um, and then he just sit in with a freedom writer uh, at a lunch counter and gotten put in solitary for three weeks because the, the white college kid he did not know got the flu in prison and they couldn't have them on trial together. So they kept postponing it for another week. So he was just sitting there. I can't imagine as a teen how pissed off you would be. It was like, this white kid talked me into this, and now I'm in prison for a month. Um, But, I mean, he kept fighting, and I I talked to him when Ferguson happened in the original slate of the Black Lives Matter protests, and there was a hint of despair and fatigue in his voice. But he, over the weekend, went to a demonstration in our very small, like, town that I grew up in. And there were, he said there were like a thousand people there. <laughs> and he seems so energized by the energy of other people. This There's a sense of solidarity in New York that I feel. I was hanging a banner for George Floyd on my, um, my fire escape last night. Some guy I've never talked to before, never seen before in my life, looked up at me. He was just walking his dog and his dog was taking shit. And he looked up and saw me hanging it. And he asked to take a picture of it and then said, you know, solidarity and you know, justice for George Floyd. And... Everywhere I took a walk on Saturday and in my neighborhood, there's handmade signs, one on every street at least, that say Justice for George Floyd. I know like where I live in Bushwick, obviously people like are going to care a lot about that. There's a lot of black people Mm -hmm. that live here and these communities are tight knit. But this does not, this is, I I think because of COVID-19, the financial hit that everyone's taken because of COVID-19 and the fact that everyone is like home a lot more. The uh, people have more access to news sources that are going to show them different perspectives, more time to actually read those perspectives, and everyone's being forced to actually get to know their neighbors. Because, you know, if you need something, you have to ask a neighbor first right now, if you live in New York, for sure. Um, and it's just, it, it's, it's created this environment where the sense of solidarity is palpable. And that's new. That is the thing that feels new for me. That is the thing that is giving me energy. I don't want to say I'm excited. I don't want to say I feel hopeful because I know this could go in any direction. And, and it's it's a volatile situation. But people in Iran, in Palestine, Israel, in Tokyo are protesting their own instances of police violence, police brutality, and standing in solidarity with Minnesota. And I didn't see that. <laughs> In 2016, 2015. That shit's crazy to me. I think um, one of the things that makes me a little more pessimistic 
in some ways is that one of the so largely I had to stay the the hell off Twitter a lot this weekend because uh, it was just one of one of those weekends where even people I generally agree with were starting to frustrate the living hell out of me. And it was just hitting the point where I'm like, I can't stay on here uh, because I am seeing like it's just kind of exacerbating the sense of like uh, futile stress in, in some ways, but also one of the weird through lines I saw again and again was kind of a fixation on figuring out who are the legitimate protesters and who are the people causing the protests to turn into violent riots. And this was like, and these were not, I was saying this not just from, uh, you know, centrists uh, that you might expect to hear this kind of thing from. I was also seeing this from people I've generally considered pretty progressive. I still saw a lot of this fixation on uh, figuring out who is behind uh, all this looting behind all of this property destruction. And it really did seem like, uh, you know, kind of a dogs chasing cars uh, situation in some ways where, where there was this, it was a lot of people looking at these situations and trying to figure out, well, there are the real valid protests that I agree with, but then there are other people trying to hijack them. And depending on who you are and where you stand, it could be the people coming in and trying to ruin the protests uh, are online leftists, right? Mm -hmm. They're they are, they are lefty cosplayers who come in and are hijacking uh, a Black Lives Matter protest for their own sort of you know, poser agenda in some ways. And I saw that being sort of speculated about. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also a lot of folks who are arguing that, and I think there's there's some reason to believe this, certainly, that white supremacists are coming in and, like, intentionally trying to wreck protests, that undercover cops are, you know, intentionally yeah. trying to do this. There's evidence there was for a story on Motherboard uh, yesterday or today uh, we're recording this on Monday about that very topic of white supremacists speaking openly about going to these protests and trying to turn them violent to incite a race war. What's interesting, though, I saw Ben Makich talking about this on Twitter. A lot of them are saying uh, <laughs> that it's not worth it to go to the protests because the cops want to arrest them, the white supremacists, and they don't want to go to jail. Yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think... I was wondering how much how widespread this was, and I was like, "This is I'm this is just excessively online. I need to get off." Mm -hmm. And then I made the mistake of looking at like Facebook, uh, some uh, some family Facebook, rah. some family Facebook. <laughs> no, 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 hold on. And like even there, people who I love and generally consider maybe not super lefty, but again, pretty reliably progressive, are sort of I see them parroting the same thing of like, you know, I was really sympathetic, but. You know, this rioting is just not the way to go about it. And it really sort of there, – there are a couple things that really stressed me out about that. Uh, one is that this notion that only only a very particular type of protest can be valid mm -hmm. and anything else that happens – not only is wrong and morally indefensible, but somehow invalidates and yeah. creates some sort of referendum yeah. on the entire cause that brought people out into the streets in the first place. Yeah, and the fact that this from is Chanel, who, by the way, Chanel, the woman herself, was a fucking Nazi, somehow devalues the entire Black Lives Matter movement. 
handbags from Chanel matter more than black lives is essentially what you're saying here. And it's difficult to get and talk to those people that act, that already believe that, that that is what they're saying to the people of color around them when they lament looting. Like I, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't give a fuck about personal property at this time. You could burn my entire house down if that would revive George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, Aubrey Ahmad. Yeah, take everything I own if that would bring them back. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't. And I have to say, though, Rob, I see what you're saying. I feel you. And that I feel I see these same kind of white liberal types saying the same shit I saw in 2016, 2015 about property damage, about trying to, to distinguish between the correct protesters and the rioters and the looters, not understanding that sometimes you want to go out and light a trash can on fire because your community has been so damaged by the police. Um, It's it's just like, in my social circles right now, which I know is like specifically curated to be full of people of color and (laughs) full of organizers, because that's the only, those are the people I like hanging out with. All I see is ignore that shit, keep with the message, keep going forward. Eventually these people will have to understand, will have to see. Like my roommate is a, uh, comes from a conservative Catholic family. And she said her mom has been saying the same kind of stuff about, no, I don't like the rioting. I don't like the rioting. But she's also been watching videos of police just instigate shit. Just push yeah. women, spray them in the face, take people out of cars who are just minding their own damn business. And even this person who's already on, you know, hand about the, the rioting, even she is like, well, the cops are in the wrong here. And that's that's also a different thing that I'm noticing. I don't know if you well, saw any of that. So I think, but I think this is the thing. I think the people I saw on Facebook were watching TV coverage of right. the protests. And I think you get, I think one of the really underrated factors in just like what the fuck happened to American politics uh, in the last 50 years is just like the news became for a lot of people TV and what they saw on TV. And yeah. the news exists in a state of perpetual amnesia about context. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sort of parachute in, they point their cameras at a thing and they're like, so what's going on here? We better find out. But it, you know, it is the moment that it is, they are always moments almost without context in the way these things are framed and presented. Uh, and I think the other thing is that news media in general craves a particular type of access that makes it predisposed to work with authorities and, that like where they where they set up their shots, where they like tell their story, uh, where they tell their story from, the people who get to be characters in news media coverage, all slants coverage in a certain way. And I think when I sort of checked into like, hey, what 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 is my family seeing in all this? They were seeing a story being told of, uh, you know, protests that started out with a righteous cause, but were obviously getting out of hand. And now, you know, we needed to we needed to crack down or we needed to restore order or something because the protests are becoming more dangerous than the cause. And I think you're pre I think you are prone to get that kind of narrative if you're following like particularly broadcast news media. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people who are seeing more of like the raw footage online, it's increasingly undeniable that like police across the country have gotten completely out of hand. Uh, and also we now have, we are now at the, 
at the end of 10 years where there've been just increasing numbers of these stories with increasing amounts of damning footage, right? Like I think it probably shouldn't be underestimated the degree to which police have devastated their reputation in the last 10 years. I think one of the things that's happened across all these various, uh, you know, scandals is that when these first incidents happened, it was probably easier to say, well, this is an isolated incident, right? Oh, the, you know, obviously, like, some cops are bad. I think you have 10 years of this same story playing out and just horrific footage coming out. I do like to think that as people are exposed to that, they do start to realize, like, oh, this is a this is a police force prone to violence, prone to overreacting, and it lies. It lies as a matter yeah. of course. It lies routinely. And I do think it might have been easier to sell certain things around the Ferguson protest, mm-hmm. and it's less easier to sell now. Yeah. I mean, George Floyd, I'm sure he was no angel in many ways. People have discovered that he was working in porn, blah, 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 blah. But he was also a, clearly an incredibly compassionate man who loved his children and who really cared about the black community. And as apparently my boyfriend told me, uh, like a really big person in the like the Texas rap scene, <laughs> and like was friends with a bunch of football players and stuff from from Texas. I I don't know how that happened, but he apparently had like cut a bunch of verses and and was like making waves. So that's that's I think part of it is that he was someone who just unequivocally contributed to his community. I'm seeing a lot of really dumb shit from my people recently. I mean. I've been, then this, this past weekend has sort of completely changed my attitude and how I talk about race and that I used to be, to say a lot of euphemism, euphemisms and try to make white people comfortable and I'm just not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm like, I keep laughing at the end of every sentence because it feels like a joke, but I've spent so much of my life trying to make white people comfortable in the way that I talk about race. And now I feel like I have a, finally have an opportunity to just say how I actually feel. Like I'm seeing a lot of dumb shit from white people about George Floyd's character his character doesn't matter. He was a person and he was killed by the police. He was killed by a man who looked at him in the eyes, made a choice, and then kneeled down on his throat and suffocated him to death. And the police force is lying about that. And they're only have only charged this one officer with manslaughter and not have charged the other two officers who stood by and watched it happen and didn't do shit. So I'm, I, I know that a person's human, like their, their personhood matters regardless of what they were like. But George Floyd was a person that people loved. <laughs> so there's that. People in his community really liked him. He was not just like another poor kid who hadn't quite done things. This was a person who was embedded in this community who was, was deeply respected and who people really, really liked. And it's really easy to lift up that. And yeah. I've seen that be uplifted. Like the love that his community feels for him. This He's become a martyr, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, I, I think that we've gotten sidetracked in so many of these previous uh, in some of these previous incidents. And again, this always suits the police, which is that mm. well, who is the victim here? Like, w- what were they like? And we end up de- derailed into this again. Like, who is you know? You take someone's entire life and you somehow say because of all these things we know about them, they were probably in some way culpable for what police did to them. Yeah. And that has been clearly harder with George Floyd than it's ever it's ever been. And, of course, this also comes in a month where we also found out the truth behind Ahmed Arbery and mm-hmm. uh, Breonna Taylor. Like we, we yeah. now – like this is a month where – 
oh, the law is enforced selectively around yeah. black people and yeah. police policy, police force is deployed disproportionately uh, against them. Uh, and these these things are all sort of they're, they're crystallizing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they we spent the, the police force across this nation spent the entire weekend like criminalizing and arresting thousands of protesters because they don't want to arrest and charge three police officers. That's just some cult shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> all it is. It's, it's a, if this is what the forces that are supposed to protect people in this country, they are not interested in that. They are interested in protecting the forces of private, you know, that make money off of private property and protecting each other. They're not interested in protecting the human beings that live in these communities. They don't even come from these communities. They don't live yeah. there. Uh, people apparently yesterday at the protest at Barclays were shouting, go back to Nassau County <laughs> at the cops. Like, That's where yeah. they live. I, yeah, and I think this is, this is probably the other like chief reason I just don't care if protests turn into riots where a bunch of shit gets busted up. Yeah. Uh, because if you talk about like breaching the peace, like when police murder with impunity, that's it. That's the game. That is that's a wrap. Like the rule that that is the end of rule of law. Like when police do that, that is the that is the breach of the social compact that allows the state to have its monopoly on violence. When that is misused and abused, and then the you know state does nothing to redress it. At that point. What happens happens, right? You know, you know what I mean. Like that, that that becomes the unrest that follows is the fault of the state. It is the fault of the police force that provoked the situation. It is not the fault of masses who mobilize in reaction to that. That you know, the the responsibility for the for that cannot be devolved to them. Yeah, yeah, I I'm with you there. I I just feel like. The argument now, I feel like everyone has the language to dismantle that argument. And that that is one thing I feel. That there probably are pockets of liberals hanging uh, ringing over per, like private property. But uh, people at large now understand that when you say that, what you're saying is the windows of the Chanel store matter more to me than black people. Because the correct, like the, now I feel like everything just is a lot clearer. clearer. Yeah. I, I, the, the COVID's impact on this. Like, I feel like can't really be understated. People mm -hmm. have all been hit economically in this way that has created a leveling effect in terms of class, where we all know, everyone everywhere in this country knows that the only people who are not being hit economically by this are people like Jeff Bezos. Everybody, everybody, everybody is taking a hit. So uh, the understanding of class solidarity has just changed, where even if no one really agrees politically, we all understand now that there's two sides. There's bosses and workers, and you better be on the side of the workers. And then from there, people can more easily see through corporate bullshit and see through marketing speak. That's what I'm noticing. There's more and more people, at the, at the beginning of COVID, when people saw that Gal Gadot Imagine video, and they were all like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> That's when I was like, okay, people are not impressed by this anymore. People don't give a fuck about this. And then over the weekend, I saw people in all of their own sort of internet communities, right? I saw makeup artists saying, why are none of the makeup brands that make money off of their diverse skin tone, you know, foundations not saying shit about Black Lives Matter? Do we not matter to you? I saw people in the Animal Crossing Splatoon communities flood their communities with support. 
I saw people in like really random communities. There was a Sonic the Hedgehog account that was like Sonic the Hedgehog in the second and like Sonic Adventure 2 was a victim of police violence. <laughs> so we have to support Black Lives Matter. I know. Is that what? it? Is that the take? <laughs> was like, well, the conclusion is good. I don't know about how the path you spray got painting, there. <laughs> spray painting Sonic into my martyr's portrait <laughs> on the wall of the local building. But I, I do think, like, the, the political weight of this argument has just shifted. When you say, but they shouldn't riot, though, more people are willing to say you're on some goofy shit now than they were before. I feel like people were trying to appease these, I after Joe Biden, after this election cycle, after all this shit that's happened where the moderate way has won out and then failed spectacularly, people are just not... They're fucking. They're fucking sick of it. I I think across class, like across you know the middle and lower classes and across race, there is just a feeling of like this is the turning point. Either we do something now or nothing ever is going to change. I hope so. I worry that like if in terms of like who COVID the disease itself right like it affected the most, it was really disproportionate. It was like. The outcomes were really dictated by class and race in a lot of ways. Now, economic harm, I don't know, right? Because like way more people lost work than, you know, passed away from COVID. And so I think in terms of the economic distress, that's probably still a little bit concentrated, but but it does seem like much more widespread. But I do wonder like in terms of how the pandemic unfolded, I, I do wonder how much, again, like it really changed. And I think these are things that we aren't going to know right now. We're going to know, like this is one of those things where if this was the turning point, we will know it in some months or years to come. Uh, I hope it is. Like I do hope that this starts to penetrate the complacency uh, people have about the police, about who governs their cities, like, and particularly liberals, right? Like this is one of the really exasperating things to see that this stuff happens. And for the response to be, well, you know, this is, it's that damn Trump fella. We got to get him out of the white house. <laughs> and it's like, like, I didn't know he was the mayor of every fucking city for the last <laughs> 10, 15 years. Like I didn't realize that he had that kind of power. Uh, and it's really been eye opening the degree to which, you know, I think, mean, probably too much focus goes to New York because it's kind of uh, a media epicenter. But just to see once again, like Cuomo and de Blasio were terrible in in responding to Mm COVID-19 and they're being terrible at responding to this, but the difference is they're being very proactive with this and they're very passive with the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Or just Uh, look at um, Chicago yesterday. um, They gave the entire city 15 minutes notice that they were going to start shut down all public transportation, which they did not do during COVID-19 because they deemed it essential. But it's not essential suddenly when they need to trap people in the loop so they can arrest right. them and criminalize their presence outside. <clears throat> right. So. And, and yeah, it's it's super revealing when you see like your liberal bastions just can't get it together, right? Just are completely helpless when there's a broad problem like COVID mm-hmm. out there. Uh, but then, oh, a, a protest went went late into the night, mm-hmm. we can rearrange our society overnight to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. Garcetti, Lori Lightfoot. Lori Lightfoot's been on thin fucking ice for a long time. She's done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and de Blasio. 
like I feel like we actually will truly enter the cool zone when we can force one of them to resign. And I I think the clock is ticking on all of them. The level <laughs> of dissatisfaction the entire city of New York feels with Bill de Blasio right now is very intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's astonishing the degree to which that man has no constituency, as far as I can yeah. tell anymore. Yeah. yeah, I don't know who he's trying to appeal to. Last night he was running around to d- different protest spots and just texting, everything looks great here, while his the police force was publicizing the fact that they arrested his daughter. Yeah. Oh, that's... Yeah, and God, Literally we should... have your daughter hostage, mayor of New York. <laughs> we better run around making sure no one's throwing empty plastic bottles at us. <laughs> Again, 10 years of the police discrediting themselves. I don't think any police force has been as like publicly gleeful at discrediting itself as the NYPD and the Benevolence Associations I mean, uh, associated with it. I saw that NYPD and police force in other cities were shooting at journalists. I knew that they were fucking up. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's something that really annoys me about journalists, but journalists only really start to care about an issue when it starts affecting other journalists. And as soon as that woman, that freelance reporter, was shot in the eye with a rubber bullet and her eyeball exploded, and she's now permanently blind in her left eye and might lose the eyeball entirely, I knew that we would be seeing, and we have been seeing today, a slate of headlines that... Blame the cops directly for the escalation of violence, which has always been true, but has not necessarily been reported in that way by major mainstream publications. Because they used to be smart enough to know, like, hey, like, go to the reporters and look like you're in control. Give them their quotes. quotes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, You're shooting them in the fucking forehead with their bullets and blinding them, injuring them. Right. Uh, and some of this is reaching local news stations, too. I saw a video of a woman on local news during a live broadcast start screaming because the cops were shooting at her. And then her cameraman, like, went out of his way, like, did some real news reporter shit and, like, found the cop that was shooting at them and just hold held him on the screen for one or two seconds to show the pointed gun pointing directly at this, yeah. at this camera. So that stuff is slowly but surely filtering through into like the mainstream news because journalists have no choice now but to say they're fucking the cops are shooting at us too the cops don't want us to see this shit and it would be great if it didn't take cops shooting at journalists for this to happen and i'm very happy that's happening yeah nothing um it is difficult to remain the like to remain in that posture of like completely mm-hmm. benighted objectivity yeah. when like you are literally being shot. Yeah, um, a rubber bullet exploded my eyeball is a difficult sentence to write when you know who shot that rubber bullet at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we should take a break here, and then we will get to a conversation that Gita, you and I have been wanting to have for months. Yeah. Um. Is a conversation it was from the before once. time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When we used to go out and do things, <laughs> we 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 did we experienced media in public and with other people, and uh, it was topical once, and then stopped being topical quickly, and now it's topical again. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So in our next segment, we're going to be talking about uh, a show that Gita and I saw different productions of, slightly different productions of. Uh, different casts, at least, of Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, because it is very much a play that attempts to reinterpret a classic film and novel for the Trump era, uh, but through the lens of Sorkin-esque liberalism. Mm-hmm. And 
we didn't get a chance to talk about it when it was running, when when anything was running. Uh, <laughs> but once again, my feelings about it have changed and evolved rather sharply. So I thought it would be a good time for us to finally have that have that little chat uh, as as fellow Sorkin. Are we are we aficionados? Are we fans? Or are we just people who can't? Or just I'm kind of weirdly obsessed with the dance. Fascinated by this man. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's very few people I consider auteurs, and like having a screenwriter be an auteur <laughs> yeah. is like yeah. is a thing. But there are very consistent things he does in every single script he writes that makes you know that it is a an Aaron Sorkin script, and they're very present to killing to kill a mockingbird. And the version of the play I saw was very different from yours, but we'll talk about that later because yeah. it, it's interesting what you can do once you take Aaron Sorkin out of the picture. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a quick break uh, so you can hear some goods and services advertised to you. Uh, everything is good. Consume. That's that's my that's my message. Jesus uh, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we'll be back. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. That was a compelling offer, wasn't it, folks? Uh, So, Gita, you and I, uh, I think about six months or a year apart, we saw two different productions, two different castings of Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird. And to give you a little bit of backstory on this podcast, if uh, you aren't familiar with this production and why we're sort of interested in this, uh, I'd say there's a couple interesting things about To Kill a Mockingbird uh, as just where it stands in media right now. I think you also have to go back to when Harper Lee's publisher, under murky circumstances, Mm -hmm. got her other, her new novel, uh, Set of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Which appears to basically have been the original version of To Kill a Mockingbird before her publisher suggested basically a massive like redirection of what it is. And it kind of complicated uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in a lot of ways, which is sort of a beloved piece of literature, beloved piece of film uh, about Jim Crow era, the Jim Crow era in the South, but also uh, a portrait of what it is to be an honorable, decent man uh, in in an unjust time. And Set of Watchmen basically recast that as the character Atticus Finch, who is the country lawyer uh, who defends uh, Tom Robinson uh, on, on a rape charge. Set of Watchmen sets the action years later when his daughter returns to town and her memories of her father run up against the reality of who he actually is, which is a pretty, a, a pretty awful and complicated racist uh, in a lot of ways. And so, set a watchman in some ways presents an image of 
the story that Harper Lee is telling as maybe this is the truer version, right? Is the one she it is the one she wrote first. It was the one that uh, was you know clearer in her mind and maybe nearer to her heart. And then To Kill a Mockingbird is the more marketable one. It is the story yeah. that. Uh, Americans wanted to be told. It is a story that generations of Americans have come to love as they read it, as they see a really great film starring Gregory Peck, uh, you know, tell the story to us and present this image of, in particular, um, heroic white manhood. Mm -hmm. Aaron Sorkin, uh, after Trump was elected, put together a production of his own take on To Kill a Mockingbird, a stage show of To Kill a Mockingbird. And it is in a lot of ways kind of openly an attempt on the part of Sorkin to address the Trump era. And right away we begin to get into complicated territory because in some ways this becomes about – this in some ways feels like – is this a is this a liberal making it all about them once again right is this is this sorkin looking at this moment being like you know what people really need to hear what i think of all the stuff that's going on in the world right now but it is also an attempt to reckon, reckon with the failures of his brand of liberalism and i think Set a Watchman kind of lurks in the background here cuz i think set a watchman introduces the idea that maybe atticus finch in reality was a deeply disappointing character um, was not the person that the narrator to kill a mockingbird scout was not the hero. She believed him to be. Maybe he was flawed um, and deluded in some ways. And I think Sorkin is trying to introduce that in his play as well. But also I think it is an example of how difficult it can be to escape comfortable and familiar modes of thought and expression. Uh, But I also think there's a chance that those themes might've come out very differently in the two versions we saw Gita, because I saw the version, the original version uh, with the casting of Jeff Daniels as Atticus Finch, who as any fan of the newsroom knows (laughs) um, is as close as we've gotten to Aaron Sorkin's muse. I would say like Aaron Sorkin is like Aaron Sorkin is like, this is my perfect vessel. This is, this is the person I have a, just a complete mental connection with my words come to life through Jeff Daniels as I imagined them. And in the newsroom, what we realized is they make you sound like an asshole and every (laughs) other Sorkin production maybe mediated that a little bit. And the newsroom with Jeff Daniels sort of being the Sorkin insert character uh, just reveals like, Oh, this guy might be a complete prick. Uh, And so Jeff Daniels played uh, Atticus in the version I saw, and it was about what you might expect, but I'm very curious, Gina, who was your Atticus Finch? Well, it was Ed Harris. (laughs) Westworld, Ed Harris. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, one, that man's fine. I gotta say it. Just seeing him in person, I couldn't help it. Does he <laughs> He's still a got beautiful, it? Beautiful man. He still got it. The charisma <laughs> wafts off him. He is an incredible actor. And his presence as Ed Harris, uh, as um, Alex Finch, reframed the entire play. Ed Harris is an actor. I would say Jeff Daniels in the hands of Aaron Sorkin. He is smug liberalism personified. 
<laughs> Ed Harris has a smugness to him, but he's angry in a way that Jeff Daniels cannot appear angry. Jeff Daniels' anger comes from a sense of righteousness. Ed Harris's anger comes from a real sense of pain. You can feel that the anger has a root cause, that it's somewhat irrational. That's what it makes him so effective in that first season of West Wing. So of uh, Westworld, so bad, too bad that they didn't do any more seasons of that show. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great, you know, it was a great mini series. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was incredible at the end. Kind of nihilistic. I have some issues with you know the plotting in it, but it's from a Nolan sibling, so I don't care. It's a mini series, though. I guess it works out. It wraps up yeah. pretty definitively with no real open ends for them to explore. So I don't know why they would make another season of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a violence to him. He feels violent. He feels like he could do violence. In fact, um, in this, there's a scene in the play where uh, he does confront a pretty cut and dried violent racist and fights him or, or attempts or threatens him with violence. And Ed Harris exploding into that action on stage Everyone on the, in the room felt it. You know, I could you could feel everyone pull away from the stage because they could feel the feel the force of that anger, feel the force of that violence. And I saw a play. This also had um, actor Nick Robinson as the older, the oldest um, Finch child, and gem, the gem. Right? The yeah. yes, the um, the those two actors had an incredibly good relationship. And I felt like Nick Robinson's portrayal of Jem also made the play feel a little bit different for me. Nick Robinson, for better, for lack of a better term, was bringing real like Chapo Trap House energy. He was <laughs> playing it. He was playing it as a disgruntled teenager, one who can't. What he echoed the feeling that my dad had told me he felt sometimes growing up in Selma, where he was like, <clears throat> the older people in our in our community. They know what this is wrong. They know what's happening and they know that it's incorrect and it's racist, but they're not doing anything. And I'm angry. I'm angry about that. In many ways, the version of a play I saw was about anger. It was about like Scout Finch as an adult trying to understand why everyone was so mad that summer, what everyone was so angry about. And I was incredibly moved. I was not expecting a lot. <laughs> But I came out of that play thinking it was fantastic. And I don't know how you came out of your version of the play, but it sounds a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, I think I came away with it. I came away from it feeling like Sorkin got close, but he just can't quite escape his the tropes he likes. And he does have mm -hmm. tropes, right? Like, if you've watched more than one of his series, you will notice that certain plots are just repeated throughout all Sorkin works, right? Like they're just, there are themes that are revisited again and again, almost beat for beat. Yeah. Uh, and To Kill a Mockingbird, I think, is him really trying hard to escape some of that, right? It is him trying hard to think beyond like, uh, you know, we just need is a really decent, witty man to like, that's, that is Sorkin's, that is Sorkin's dream, by the way, is a... An erudite crusader on behalf of decency will come save us somehow. And I think in some ways the Killing Mockingbird is him attempting to recognize that that's weird magical thinking and doesn't really answer the problems at hand in society. But then I also think in the version I saw, it can't help but then 
sort of return to the idea of, yes, but what if this time he really were a decent man crusading, uh, you know, crusading eruditely uh, for on, on the cause of right. And so I think for me, I, I came away from it really frustrated because it felt like you could see the effort that was going into it. You could see the direction it was pointing, but also it couldn't help but be a Sorkin story. Yes. Here, I feel like, yeah, there were moments where I watched the play and I was thinking if anyone other than Ed Harris was talking right now, this would make me feel so angry because <laughs> I would feel like it's just delivering a panacea to a white audience. Um, you linked an article actually from the actor who played Tim Robinson, who is the black man who uh, was you know, charged with rape that he could not have possibly committed in the story of To Kill a Mockingbird and is, you know, found guilty and sentenced to death. Um and I found that really striking the way that he's talked about his experience of playing a black man who is effectively lynched by the government and looking out at the specific quote you pulled in our Google Doc. Let me open it. Uh, is what surprised me is how much it hurts my heart to tell this black man's story with this inevitable end for the nightly consumption of this audience. I didn't realize how desperate I'd be for the comforting faces of people of color in the sold out 1435 seed Schubert Theater. I know that the black people who came to this play share the pain I experience on stage in a way that white theater goers cannot. And the role of black people in most Aaron Sogan stories are to be a magical Negro martyr in this way. Yeah. Um, it's certainly true in the West Wing. Uh, there's a really good episode of this podcast, Citations Needed, that uh, untangles the West Wing and the way that it has directly inspired the current Democratic Party in the way that they enact politics that I recommend you listen to. But Dulé Hill's character in that show is like a particularly egregious example of the way that Aaron Sorkin sees the value of Black people and Black lives. Dulé Hill's character <clears throat> needs to get an internship in the White House because I guess apparently no one else is hiring, <laughs> weird, uh, as like a teenager so that he can take care of his like entire family. And that makes him so noble and what a good guy, blah, blah, blah. No one Black works in the White House. But this poor Black child can be an intern. <laughs> And it proves how great all the white people around him are because they also, went into the White House. Also, that child has to be a genius, right? Like the show yes. will allude to this routinely of like, oh, he's just off the charts intelligent. Yeah. Uh, you know, he tested out of all his AP classes. He got accepted mm -hmm. to all the good IVs. And then he's allowed to um, reach outside of his racial class by dating the daughter of the president. Like We don't see anyone else from the black community in Washington, D.C., which has a huge black population and did when the show aired, like interact in any way with the rest of the White House. But we, o we only allude to that character's personal life through his interactions with the president's daughter. So blackness is good when it's just white, <laughs> essentially. Like black culture is good when it interacts with white culture and assimilates into white culture. Yeah. Like, I don't know that Aaron Sorkin is aware that that is the story he keeps telling, but it is the story he keeps telling. It's so, I mean, God, that we're verging on the let's just talk about Aaron Sorkin because, like, I think back to Studio 60 is probably <laughs> the most explicit he's been trying to address that blind spot as well. Like, a major plot arc in Studio 60 is D.L. Hughley's character. Telling the Sorkin insert in that, that like, hey, there are parts of American experience you do not speak to because you don't know about them. 
And it makes you a coward artistically. And then the solution to that is they basically pull in a really terrible black stand-up comic off the street. Oh my and, god! And yes. like, do you remember how bad like? Because Sorkin couldn't write comedy either, so like, yeah. Studio sixty has the problem of like they hear this dude do a really awkward stand-up bit, and they're like, you know, what this is this is raw talent. This is just <laughs> raw comedic genius. They had this running bit in Studio sixty where they were like, they had these two guys who had like they were like obviously meant to be hacks, but they were the only two writers in that show that had uh, sketch ideas that had jokes in them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's true. And the show got so much worse after those guys get left. Yeah, um, like it's it's the the moment I knew that Aaron Sorkin was not equipped to write about the comedy comedy as an industry is when the Aaron Sorkin stand in comes in and demands that all the comedy writers stop wearing T-shirts and jeans. It's like you might as well just fire all of them. <laughs> They're not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> fucking reenacting well. the opening of the movie Patton but with comedy writers <laughs> everyone's gonna wear a goddamn suit <laughs> we're gonna go out there and die as men These on that stage can afford a suit like they don't even know where to go to get one I don't think they have anything that they're still to their eyeballs on, on Harvard it. debt <laughs> yeah. uh, god but yeah so I think so I think Sorkin does have this history of like knowing that hmm is my liberalism kind of blind to the concerns of communities of color? And then he's like, what is a black person I would like? And it's, it's Aaron yep. Sorkin, but black. Yep. And that is kind of the recurring motif. But with To Kill a Mockingbird, he's trying to address uh, a topic that is just so much more loaded, right? Like this is... You know, he is he sort of brought to prominence by a courtroom drama. In some ways, this is him returning to uh, his roots. Uh, you know, A Few Good Men is his breakthrough work. Uh, and this is his attempt to sort of tell, tell to return to that theme, uh, but through the lens of Jim Crow. And I think one of the things I found really illuminating about what sort of sets the stage for where To Kill a Mockingbird is coming from is in 2016, Sorkin wrote a letter to an open letter to his daughters. Um, and obviously it's not really to his daughters. Like he, he said like Vanity Fair got a copy so they could publish it. Uh, but he was explaining how he was reacting to uh, the, the Trump election. And one of the quotes uh, from it is he says, we're not powerless. We're not voiceless. We don't have majorities in the house or Senate, but we do have representatives there. It's also good to remember that most members of Trump's own party feel exactly the same way about him that we do. We make sure the people we sent to Washington, including Kamala Harris, take our strength with them and never take a day off. Uh, and then he, for his big finale in this letter, he says, the battle isn't over. It's just begun. Grandpa fought in World War II. And when he came home, this country handed him an opportunity to make a great life for his family. I will not hand his granddaughter a country shaped by hateful and stupid men. Your tears last night woke me up and I'll never go to sleep on you again. And literally one of the arcs in To Kill a Mockingbird is the attempt to awaken Atticus Finch. Uh, when the play opens, the sort of dilemma that is established, and this is very different from To Kill a Mockingbird as we see it in the film and in the novel, is basically the gauzy recollections of a worshipful daughter reflecting on 
this this past trauma, but also what her father went through and stood up for. What the Sorkin version opens on is, and you alluded to this, uh, this is much more about Jem, right? Like, Jem is an angry young man, and he is angry at the injustice he sees in the world around him, but he is also probably angriest at his father Atticus because all the things Atticus values, all the things he attempts to model and teach his kids are also the things that allow sort of the moral passivity that encourage Jim Crow and uh, clan terror to flourish in the Mm -hmm. South in this time. Mm -hmm. And one of like the through line of this play is, is anything going to shake Atticus out of this complacency? Jem from the beginning is calling for it. You know, why Mm -hmm. is he always, why is he always turning the other cheek? When is he going to stand and fight? And this play sort of argues that by the end of it, Atticus will have been awakened. He will say, I recognize that I have been sort of hiding out from the realities of this world, but now I'm, now I'm awakened. I will fight. But I think the ways in which he fights return to this, return to the themes laid out in this letter from Sorkin of like, Mm -hmm. you know what, you know what fighting looks like? It looks like electoralism Mm -hmm. and it looks and and also it looks like letting the people who have been in charge remain in charge. Let us fight, but like you don't worry about it. It's our yeah. it's our business to sort out. You kids go play. Be kids. Yeah. That was not at all with when the context of having Ed Harris in this. Yeah. Things felt different. There was different things that I remember. Of, I saw this months ago. So there's different things I just personally remember of the play. I think one of the things that stood out to me most strongly was how I felt like the narrative framing had Jem be in the right almost all of the time when he argued with his father. Um, <clears throat> I remember thinking as an audience member, there's a moment where Jem uh, walks past an old racist lady's house and just destroys all the flowers there because he's talking shit about his dad for, for representing a black man. And Jem is then told by Atticus Finch to go back and apologize. And Jem is like, for what? Apologize for what? Like, why should I apologize to someone who's a fucking racist? And Ed Harris makes a long speech about um, blah, 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 decency. But Jem in this version, it's begrudging that way that he goes back. It's angry, frustrated, angry specifically at his father for being a coward. He does what he's told because he's a good boy, but he doesn't let it slide. And every single time Jem comes back to be like, you're fucking up, dad, dad, this is not the way. You can see Ed, there's a, there was a really intense tension between the Ed Harris and Tim, Nick Robinson, the actor, the actor Nick Robinson. And uh, he, it felt, that felt true to life. That felt like conversations that a lot of young people are having with their parents right now, but people of all races who are just more aware of what it actually means to fight in the struggle against racism what it means, like how the value of decency in that fight, which is not very valuable, frankly. And by the end, when Atticus Finch, played by Ed Harris, is so frustrated at losing the case, and then this black man being shot by the cops, um, he that when a clan member comes by to gloat, he actually attempts violence on him. You get the sense that even though he lost control, he finally feels the right amount of anger. And he finally is expressing it openly and outwardly. 
which is what everyone else in the town who also was not racist has always needed. So when Jem has broken his arm and Boo, Ra- Boo Radley delivers him back and he's looking over Jem in the bed and saying, you know, that he gets it now, you get the sense that this version of Atticus Finch, Ed Paris playing Atticus Finch, is not going to enter the fight for electoralism. This is a person that's ready to fight physically, that's ready to represent the Black people in these lives empathetically and willing to take their lead as opposed to deciding what's good for them. Uh, This version of the play also, I think, made it much clearer how Atticus Finch's involvement in that Black man's life got him murdered. Yes. (laughs) Fucking (laughs) no. Like, this is the thing I couldn't shake was there is an early scene. uh, So the way this all shakes out, I can't remember how much the movie has this has this stuff, but like Atticus doesn't want to take the case uh, initially. Um, but his friend, the judge, is like, look, they're going to railroad this guy. He needs competent representation. It's a bad case. Um, but there is a scene where he meets with Tom in the jail and Tom's like, I want to plead out. Like, I can't like I don't want to go to trial. I just want to I just want to plead. And. Atticus talks him into going to trial. He's like, if you if you plead, they're going to give you like thirty years. Uh, you know, you 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 your kids won't even know you by the time you get out. And it is very much this notion of Tom is right. Tom knows what the score is. Like he knows it's it's the South in the thirties. Like there is no way he is getting out of this uh, with a fair trial. But Atticus, for some reason thinks the rules like the rules and procedures of the court are this holy thing. Like literally the tagline for the play is all rise. And it's sort of this play on rising up, but also we are supposed to sort of be at a moral attention, uh, you know, and, and that's what is required of, of us in, in the court. And Atticus talks Tom into taking this to trial, even though Tom knows this goes to trial they're going to find me guilty regardless of the defense we run. It's just yeah. like that is that is the fact here. But Atticus needs to learn for himself. And Tom is just sacrificed in this, you know, in this way uh, because Atticus thinks even though he knows this is a racist society and justice is hard to come by, he also just can't believe that like they would rig the game that 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 openly. He just can't fathom it. And so he's fucking blindsided that his clever case and his brilliant maneuverings and it has all the catharsis of courtroom drama, right? The, the way the prosecution case falls the fuck apart, uh, the, you know, the evidence that the, the defense is able to, uh, you know, bring to play, bring into play. Uh, it all goes pretty well to plan with one exception. Um, and it still just doesn't, it doesn't move the needle. Um, and like if Tom had been allowed to plead, he would have gone to jail, but he would have lived. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the version of the play that I saw, there was a, did you have this also? There's a conversation with the black maid of that house that, um, in that Ed Harris's natural sort of smugness, that, that was a, I think Ed Harris is just a better actor than Jeff Daniels because (laughs) in that, in that scene, like, there is a natural sense of smugness to the Atticus Finch character because he is the, the patriarch. He is the moral paragon of that play. And, you know, using a black woman as a device to undercut him is something I've seen, like, in a million different pieces of fiction. But in here, 
it felt like Ed Harris was projecting that Atticus Finch did not necessarily learn anything from that conversation. That this was a futile attempt that his own arrogance was what got in the way of him actually serving the Black community. And this woman is out here knowing that she's risking a a lifetime friendship and positive employment opportunity by trying to check him because he's willing in that scene to treat her like a black person when he doesn't do that to her at any other time. He says, I think the thing that, that, that I've heard say to me by other journalists in this industry about marginalized people, which is, why don't you just say thank you? And in this version of the scene, you, the, you could feel the hurt from the black person and Ed Harris is just a fucking stone wall. He's not willing to listen, and that is framed as bad. So I don't know how that feels That's, to you. When you it's decide. interesting, I think uh, I I think this comes through. I think in some ways, the the thing that I think both actors sort of adopted with this is a posture of this is not a particularly admirable character. I think the the thing that did surprise me to kill a mockingbird is how much this is a familiar Sorkin esque character with familiar Sorkin esque like. Uh, patterns but also it makes the ways in which these things have been ugly subtextually in previous Sorkin works kind of the text of the show right like I I was taken aback by how often it was just like oh that was sort of a snarky Sorkin-esque line but it just lands like an like an anvil (laughs) just in the middle of a conversation yeah the scenes with uh, the housekeeper are brutal in that way, because it comes across as so incredibly uh, tone deaf, but also the ways in which he shreds what she thought was a mutual understanding about her place in the family and mm-hmm. her place with regard, like her ability to sort of speak freely and openly with them. Yeah. And the way he sort of reinforces that, like, mm, but you're also hell. Mm, yeah. There's a hierarchy. Yeah. You know, we love you, but you can't call me out. As soon as yeah. you call me out, we're the help again. We're friends until you call me out. But if you say anything about my behavior, then why don't you just say thank you instead? It makes it all the more powerful, though, when she does just unload on him in the last act of the play when everything has gone to shit. And she mm-hmm. basically calls out like that he is the person who set this up, right? He mm-hmm. is like his insistence on believing that people are decent that you know what i mean that like the community that the community that he racism can be reasoned with is the thing that he is relying on and that's something that i think the current democratic party in part because of aaron sorkin also believes that all it takes is one great white orator and racism is over like you can everyone will go oh and then racism's gone you know yeah but it's by my own logic (laughs) oh god (laughs) It's not Mr. Like a super hot fire out here. Like it's not it's not a rap battle. It's racism's not doesn't come from a rational place. It comes from fear. Fear is not rational. You can't just talk people out of these beliefs. You have to just condemn them. You have to make them not acceptable. When I got to the end of this play, I felt like Ed Harris's version of Atticus Finch understood that because it that scene where he looks over Gem in the bed happened right after uh, people were saying that. The, the racist that lynched Tom Robinson had died. And they were like, I think charging them with anything would be like killing a mockingbird. And they gave that little sentence 
a lot of weight. They took everyone right to the front of the stage and they had it speak conspiratorially, but cheated towards the audience. So we are in, in the conspiracy as well. And we are all sharing in this truth that something extra legal happened, but it was just. It was just in the way that nothing else that happened in the play was just. And Atticus Finch's accepting of an extra legal murder being just in this instance because this person was upholding white supremacy. That, for me, felt like all the things that were coalescing into Ed Harris's Atticus Finch, understanding that the law itself is racist. You can't argue away racism. You, you can't do it. You have to fight in other ways and you have to fight outside the law sometimes. Yeah. I, yeah, I think the thing that left me unsatisfied toward the end was that, and maybe they foregrounded this a bit more. So there's a point where at the end, Atticus kind of owns the fact that his eyes have been shut to a lot of the way things are around him at this point and he's going to stop looking the other way he's going to stop turning the other cheek he, it's it's time to fight and i think he even pretty much tells jem and scout directly that they can leave the fight to him now like they have done they have they have worked they've completed their mission they have they have done their bit which is to awaken the better angels of atticus's nature but the punchline is, how does he fight? He goes and he runs a failed campaign for the state house, mm-hmm. and he tries to become a state senator so that he can fight racism uh, via legislation. And he doesn't even get that far because he loses the election like terribly, and uh, you know doesn't doesn't make it. And so the play sort of like ends on that note in terms of the epilogue. He kind of finishes with this notion of, did his fighting actually accomplish very much? Uh, and my recollection was, it sounded like it basically didn't, right? That like, mm-hmm. and, and part of that is historical reality, which is that in 1930, the forces of good extremely did not win, right? Like this nope. is like, <laughs> this is the period of like the, like the great Northern migration. Uh, yeah, you know, this, this is, is when uh, Nazis in Germany started taking cues from America and, eugen- and eugenics, right? <laughs> this is, uh... Yeah. And, and there are, there are times where it's just, like you are on, you are at a bad historical moment, and even like individual decency, you will still be the person on the outside of the uh, pre- prevailing societal uh, direction. But I also do kind of feel like I feel like the play wanted me to be satisfied with the fact that Atticus awakened to it and then he fought the good fight lost horribly mm-hmm. but fought the good fight because i think it speaks to see we fo- didn't have i don't remember because it's been so long but yeah. i don't remember the version of the play i saw mentioning anything about his senate race that he lost hilariously interesting uh, yeah and i also remember the way that they frame that scene that final scene where everything kind of coalesces into one single message where it's literally atticus finch Jem is asleep in bed. His arm is in a cast. He's been told that he's shaken, he's in shock and been given a sedative. He puts his hand on his child's head. The way that that scene was taken, at least how I took it and how the people I saw it with took it, was Atticus Finch admitting he was wrong and that his son was right and that his son needs to be the person that leads this fight, not him. That felt different. That was the thing that I got to was taken. I took away from the play. And what satisfied me because what I want to see 
as a young person and a person who wants to be politically active is people in the older generation who are more moderate, just admitting they were wrong. Yeah. Because now we have a lot of evidence that incrementalism, neoliberalism being a moderate, these are not effective in the actual Everything came of the to world. Not. Yeah. Yeah, we've tried. We've tried for a very long time and it hasn't worked. And Ed Harris, I think, embodied that idea of a man who understood finally that his life work, life's work was kind of buckus and that he needs to step back and let other people, bolder people, people who are more willing to take a stand and, you know, be beaten up by cops and have their life threatened. They need to carry the fight. Like, I think, I don't remember the exact line, but he did say something to that effect while his hand was on Jem's head, where it's just like, I get it. I get it now. I get what you were trying to tell me, and that they were trying to tell me that I was, had the wrong methodology entirely. And you need, I need to take your lead. I need to be as angry as you. Yeah, I, um, that's very, yeah, because the version I saw, I think, didn't have that emphasis, didn't have that notion of, Atticus realizing it was time to leave the stage to yeah. people who had been correct throughout, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like both versions of this Atticus Finch realized that they were wrong, but they took very different conclusions from that, right? Where the Jeff Daniels Atticus Finch was like, I'm fighting the wrong fight. Let me continue to fight it in a different area. And I think the Ed Harris version just... I think that this play demonstrate like showed a turning point in this man's life and their understanding of racial politics entirely. Yeah. Like an experience. Ed Harris in this version is so devastated by Tom Robinson's death. So fucking upset. Like when he gets when he gets to the point where he's going to commit, you know, and act like break that man's arm, he's so threatening. Threatening in a way I don't think Jeff Daniels can get. No, uh, no, the scene doesn't <clears throat> work at all with Daniels. I will tell you that right now. I was like, okay, yeah. sure. He sounded like a like a bulldog barking. Like, do you want me to break your fucking arm? He says, fuck, <laughs> you know, like really violently holding this man in a scary way. And that explosion of emotionality before the sort of domino, like domino effect of the last couple of scenes where the Boo Radley stuff is resolved and Tim Tom Robinson dies and, you know, the play ends, et cetera, et cetera. And Scout sort of explains what happens to the rest of people. Um, it's, it makes it gives you a, a pretty strong insight into like sort of a, a, the mindset of him, this person. He's so he can't believe how badly he failed. And that is why he's so angry in that moment. He can't believe how much he let everyone down. And a man in that position is not going to go run for Senate. He's yeah. got to He's going to reevaluate his entire life. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I feel like. The thing that was so unsatisfying for me was this notion that maybe it's not enough to fight the good fight, right? Like we depend on results, not intentions to an extent. And I think the the mode of liberalism that the that Sorkin has traditionally modeled, and I think the Jeff Daniels performance hewed a little more closely too, was well, you know, but hey, he ran for Senate. Like he was gonna he was gonna run on an anti-lynching platform. And yes, he lost badly and didn't achieve anything. But you know, his heart was in the right place. And that's good too. He recognized that lynching was a problem. And yeah. he like he tried to be a leader on the lynching issue. And I think that is from the vantage of like 2020, 
that's just not good enough. Like fighting the good fight and losing for 40 years just means you sucked at fighting and you ill served the causes you purported to hold dear. And I think that's what I found so frustrating about the notion that like <laughs> that Atticus was like, all right, here I go. I see what the problem is. I'm going to be a shitty politician and <laughs> like completely crater. And I'm basically going to seed the seed the floor to the Strom Thurmonds of the world. Like drove me fucking batty as I walked to that theater. Where I was like, that's your solution is to be yeah. Hillary. Yeah, it's to, <laughs> to salute. It's just to lose elections. <laughs> Because it's the decent thing to do. No, I walked out of there and I was like, this was the handing of the torch from the Atticus Finches to the Gem Finches of the world. That's what that felt like to be leaving that play. I felt very satisfied. I felt satisfied to the point where the merch for the play that they were selling didn't make sense to me. They they sold something. They were selling a piece of merch. And I was basically like, uh, it was basically a line from the play. The one that has always rang false to me in my head, my reading of the book as well. That's basically the equivalent of like, I don't care if you're black, white, yellow, or purple uh, on a tote bag. And I looked at that and I was with my boyfriend's parents. My boyfriend's mom got a ticket. They really did the purple thing? Not the black, white, yellow, purple thing, but it was essentially the equivalent of like, some people are black, but underneath we're all the same. (laughs) Shit, you know? Like, well, I mean, if underneath they're all the same, only some of us are getting lynched. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Sorry. Um, and I looked at it, I mentioned it to you, my, my boyfriend's mom was like, look at that. It doesn't even make sense. Like the, with the play that we just saw that doesn't feel consistent. And she was like, yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> Why are they selling this? This is not at all what this play felt like to me. They were selling it alive alongside Trayvon Martin Black Lives Matter merch. And I rolled my eyes at that on the way in. But on the way out, I felt like these white people might now actually grapple with what it means to say that Black Lives Matter. And I think that doubt is kind of what is driving uh, Benga Akanagbe in his piece about playing Tom, right? That is yeah. the that is the haunting through line is, am I performing this trauma for the entertainment of a white audience that just can't get it, won't get it, and then go mm-hmm. back to their lives where society continues to be unjust in these ways? Or does the play actually serve in awakening something? Does it illustrate this? Uh, because mm-hmm. I think the, the doubt lurking through this piece is – what if this is just entertainment for rich white folks? Because that's yeah. the demographic of Broadway, by and large. Yeah, I mean, there uh, was a high school class in front of us, seated in front of us. One kid was just scrolling Instagram, and he had, like, a big bag of snacks. He was not having this. <laughs> but it was really funny. Um, yeah, we watched him, like, write a snap that was just like, I'm so fucking bored. <laughs> It was really hilarious. Did he ever get into it or did he just completely tune out? No, he was completely tuned out. Some of the kids around him, though, I could see were vibing. This yeah. one kid was like probably the one kid that's too cool for school. But uh, there's one in every class, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I looked around at the white people around me and I was like, usually at, it w- at, when the lights went down, I felt a lot like I did when I saw it get out at the Williamsburg cinemas with my white boyfriend. <laughs> Just like, I better get out of here. <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, when the lights came up, I was kind of like, ha ha, crackers. <laughs> like, right again, me. <laughs> like, now you must confront all of your racial myths. <laughs> 
But what if I consumed media about my racial complicity uh, and was like more mindful about it afterwards? Isn't that I mean, just as, as, as good as actually more mindful? As long as you were actually No, more I was mind- just gonna perform it. <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, okay, shit. Yeah. Kind of think of something else. No, sorry, like I like watching telling people to watch Get Out is gonna be the extent of my anti-racism. Sorry. <laughs> Why don't you just say that you are an ally and then not demonstrate any proof of your allyship to black people on Twitter? That would definitely be helpful to the cause, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I don't know. So like you've made me like the play more though, retroactively, I think. It became you, a better like, play with different actors, I gotta yeah. say. I, I don't think Jeff Daniels has the ability to do the things that Sorkin was trying to do in the script. And I don't think Sorkin knew what he was really writing. He was owning himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's a self-own of a play. And he needed an actor that was not his muse, that was outside of his regular wheelhouse of actors. Ed Harris was very good for this role because he revealed some of the subtext. It's sort of like when you read... No one else on this podcast relates to this, but some people listening might read the last book of Twilight and read all these <laughs> horrifying descriptions of pregnancy that Stephanie Meyer has to offer. And you you read in her backstory and see that she's a Mormon <clears throat> and she has like three or four children and she got married very young and started having babies very quickly, which is exactly what happens to Bella Swan. And Bella Swan's experience of pregnancy is awful. She almost dies in childbirth. The baby eats its way out of her. Like, that's canon. And you're like, Stephanie Meyer hated being pregnant and hated having children and hated the experience of childbirth. You know that, but the book will just continue to say, oh, childbirth is a miracle. Having a baby is the best thing on earth. But you were reading it and you're just like, you don't actually believe that. (laughs) Yeah, you don't think that's true. Oh, so you you thought the body horror was beautiful. (laughs) Hmm. But then why was it such body horror? Yeah, why was it so terrifying and painful to be pregnant if it's actually a miracle and you had a little angel baby that you just psychotically love as soon as it's born? Um, no, she's got some issues she should probably work out with a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than in fiction. Um, but yeah, like I feel like, you know, if we had David Cronenberg directing the final Twilight movie, we'd just have a different understanding of that narrative and... An actor like Ed Harris in the role, it just made me think about other white actors I'd love to see in the role of Atticus Finch that would that would reframe him as less a moral paragon and more of a man that learns something important about his approach to racial justice late in life. Something that just is true for almost all social movements, which is there are a time when the methods you are used to just become irrelevant and you have to listen to the younger generation that understands the fights that need to be fought. So, yeah, I mean, I just think, honestly, Jeff Daniels not that good of an actor. <laughs> like, that's part of it. Soft disagree, but I don't okay. know how, I don't know how... He was a good actor. Yeah, it's tough, like... Now, every time I see his face, I just feel like he's the smuggest man. Yeah, he's but also, man. I think... Yeah, but he's smug in a really effective way. Like, I think the thing that I can never work out about him and Sorkin is, does Daniels know this that these characters suck, right? Like, does Mm. he just not do the thing where, like, the West Wing works because a lot of these characters, one, it's a writer's room. It's a less of a Sorkin-driven product from end to end. Uh, But also, you've got a lot of really good actors who start doing their own spins on, like, Sorkin characters, 
And this happens in Sports Night as well, where not everyone not everyone is totally straightjacketed by Sorkin writing. I think Daniels, the thing he does is he just doesn't conceal it. Like everything, warts and all, goes up there and you're like, oh, this guy sucks. I hate him. And I think I'd like to think that's an achievement and not just an unintentional side effect of Daniel's uh, sort of falling ass backwards into revealing deep seated issues with Sorkin. Yeah. Uh, But I am envious of your experience because I really I I cannot imagine that play not being improved by the direction Harris went with the character. And it sounds like maybe the tweaked end game of the I think of the, the further I mean I think this is I'm really glad that Sorkin did this as a play and not as like a, a movie or something or a yeah. television miniseries because the further this gets away from Aaron Sorkin's direct involvement the better it'll be I, I felt this way about Sorkin for a long time which is that his material is better in the hands of other people I felt that way about the social network you know Fincher has a very particular directorial style yeah. and you can see in the behind the scenes of the social network that Fincher was having a hard time dealing with Aaron Sorkin being on on set and eventually just like had him directing B-team stuff so that he wouldn't have to deal with him. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Do I need to watch the special features for the social you know, There's like a feature at, I think at least once Sorkin was doing directing B-team stuff because Fincher described him having a lot of notes on the script. And I cannot imagine David Fincher... Uh, allowing that shit for one second. <laughs> Do you see how symmetrical all of his frames are? <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't give a shit. Um, so Sorkin did talk about the difficulty of just like not being able to have as direct of an impact on the filming of the production because David Fincher would try to get him off set as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, but no but time. That- I think that Social Network is a better movie because Fincher directed it and didn't let Aaron Sorkin direct every line of dialogue. Like it, it helped even with Sorkin's tendency to have characters say too much in like a single sentence. It, it Fincher created this very impassive tone of speaking for Jesse Eisenberg to sort of walk into and like modulate into. And I feel like that wouldn't have happened if Sorkin was there. Sorkin would have wanted everything to be a lot more on the nose with that character. And I think um, accuracy aside, Sorkin, I was thinking about this last night while I was wide awake, Sorkin understands Zuckerberg very, very much. You know, like, I don't think he portrayed personality wise the exact thing, but the way that Zuckerberg talks about humanity in that movie and the way that he talks about humanity in real life are very, very, very similar ways. Um, And I just think this is a writer that is too in love with his own creations Yes. Collaboration is such a huge part of art. And if you can't share your toys, then you're just never going to be very good at collaborative works of art. <laughs> and, you know, Studio 60 is a perfect example of when the decisions that Sorkin will make if he's allowed to do whatever he wants. They're bad it. decisions. They're bad. <laughs> we have to talk about that show at some point. Like, God, I've never, I've seen like, it I've twice. been afraid. That's one more than I have. I watched it, but I was like, <laughs> I found it fascinating the way it, ways it fails. Like, mm-hmm. I think it is just oh, an amazing. utterly fascinating work. Um, okay, because also part of the show is just him um, talking shit about Kristen Chenoweth after they broke up. Oh, shit. I know. I know. It's like, like He just he, dedicates a huge part of the show about shit talking his ex-girlfriend and, and no one stopped fights. him. Uh, yeah. Yes. It's like, wait, so 
why is this plot arc here? It's because Chris and Chenoweth and I had a fight and I didn't have the right words at the time and I lost, but now I'm going to win because yep. I have final cut, bitch. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. That is, that is that show. Uh, but at the same time, like, I think it does have moments of like the episode where he's starting to disassociate a bit as he gets, as he falls deeper into uh, his painkiller addiction again Mm -hmm. and starts like losing track of like what is real and what is just like the Mm -hmm. running the running theater of the mind he is like constantly trapped in like that episode really worked for me uh because like oh like this is this is kind of the space that sorkin inhabits a lot yeah every moment with the chisholm chenmuth character and the main character where they're not rehashing old fights that they obviously had are actually also really interesting because the relationship dynamic is well-developed and easily understood. These are two exes that now have to work with each other and they have very different moral values. And that was part of the reason why they broke up. That is just a beautiful opportunity for drama and he takes advantage of it every turn. And every time he's not being self-indulgent with it, I like it. Because he also pays her the respect of establishing that she's an incredibly fucking talented comedian and actress and the star of the show. So at the very least, there is this thing that he's like, that he has to play with where he can't make fun of her. He just has to actually argue against her. And that helps with the intense self-indulgence. It's a respect. Like a lot of the time when uh, Sorkin is having a character be right and another character be wrong, there's a lack of respect for the character who is wrong. And here he's like forced, forced to. <laughs> he, he wrote a character that's good at shit. So she has to be good at shit. It's consistent, you know? The characterization is consistent. Well, uh, you'll have to come back for our special waypoints on Studio 60 and Molly's (laughs) Game. Uh, But that will do it for today's episode. Uh, Our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Gita, where can people keep up with you online? You can find me on Twitter at XOXOGossipGita. I'm also at XOXOGossipGita on Instagram. And Kato. At A underscore Kato underscore appears. That'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, such as it was. Not much of a break from the real world, but there there you go. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes it goes that way. Just uh, glides into you. <laughs> look, sometimes the oasis is still part of the desert, man. <laughs> Uh, anyway, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. We'll be back again Waypoint Radio on Friday. Until then, I don't always know what the right thing to do is, but I think the fact that I want to please you pleases you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
<laughs> Little gift for my Sorkin homies. <laughs> I guess no. I'm sorry. I got the road wrong. My 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 sore kin. Wow. Uh, okay. Mm. You're fired. Sore kin. Yeah. <laughs> no wait. That's what Jeff Daniels. That's, that's Jeff our Daniels new name is for each other. Gita, you and I are sore kin as well. Like <laughs> that's just what we are now. I gotta just go. I'm sorry. I'm leaving. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Oh God. Who's your sore kin soda? <laughs> God. Um. I have a horrible feeling it might be Josh Lyman. Probably. I think I'm probably CJ Craig. <laughs> so we're, we're both fucked, honestly. We're, yeah, just a, just a total disaster. Uh, <laughs> I just get weird fucking tweets. A thing that I need to take time and watch them eventually. I keep getting promoted tweets for the Goldman Sachs like lecture series Excuse where they me? bring like thought leaders in to lecture Goldman Sachs bankers about like <laughs> woke topics. <laughs> and what? I'm like, but I can never bring myself to like, cause they're just like three minute clips of like people giving talks where it's like, you know, listen to, uh, you know, Anand Giridharadas talk about the, you know, concentration of wealth and power among the, the 1%. Uh, to Goldman Sachs bankers. And I'm like, okay, sure. But then it's also like entertainment stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, you know, we talked to, like literally at some point, Goldman Sachs is going to like run a promoted tweet where it's like Dave Filoni, like talking about the Clone Wars and what that can teach us about investing. I want to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Jedi really just, they didn't run an effective head strategy. Uh, oh and they concentrated too many of their assets in in one class of. Uh, I mean, you're not wrong. One, it's the in thing. one class of younglings. Yeah. Yeah. Kado, <laughs> 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 uh. I love you. Kado, you are a delight. My roommate got me, got me, got everyone in the apartment cake. So let me just eat a slice of cake in your oh, honor right now. Nice. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Mm. So fucking good. Okay. I made the I'm ready to dangerous pocket. discovery lately that angel food cake requires just incredible amounts of egg whites. Yes. Mm. Yellow cake requires incredible amounts of egg yolks. Oh, no. Mm. And yeah. Like, it, was like, it was like when you do the equations, right, in like Factorio or something. And I'm like... <gasps> I could endless fucking cake. I could, I could leave it. I could have a good life. <laughs> Finally. Uh, oh my god, you've cracked it. Wow. I always don't know what to do with the egg yolks when I make angel food cake because it's so much fun to whip them up, especially now that I have a KitchenAid. And then I'm just like, well, now I got all this, the good part of the egg. <laughs> it's just yeah. sitting here. I don't know what to do with it. Fucking hell. I do yeah. love a good fatty yellow cake. Really you yolky make, yellow yeah. cake. Yeah. It mad was, cholesterol. I was like, you. this is probably not good, but it, it it's extremely good. You All know, right. Um, you got to use every part uh, of the egg. It's very important. Time not is. Hmm. What is it? <laughs> what is the time that is? is? All right. Uh, let's go at 23. Yes. 
Wait. That felt no. that felt off. That felt <laughs> off. That was wrong. Yeah. Let's go at 40. There we go. Yeah, there that was go. good. Perfect. That was a good one. That felt better. I'm sorry, I'm distracted by my dog's having a really noisy lunch right now. Uh, she is eating with such vigor and gusto that the ball is ringing gently uh, oh, that's adorable. As, as her tongue achieves some sort of harmonic resonance uh, as, it, as it goes around the Listen, lip of the ball. We always knew you had the smartest dog in the world. And she's making art right now. This yeah, she's teaching herself about experience. sound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Soon she's going to like. I'm going to come home. She's like set up a modular synth and uh, is, <laughs> yeah. just, uh, is just vibing. Just vibing. She passes you a SoundCloud link with her little paw. Now here she is, SoundCloud probably happen? to poop in the background of my phone call. <laughs> no. yes. All right, here we go. Let me just touch over and give her some privacy. Ah. <laughs> 